and equally, I'm constantly looking at, well, how do you improve the delivery of legal services? Mm -hmm. uh, it's an it's a industry that sort of remained relatively the same over a long period of time. And so back in the phase of setting up GRT Lawyers and the GRT Foundation, I had a strong belief that technology was going to play a key role in the service delivery of legal services. Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organisations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Welcome back to the Arate podcast, and if this is your first visit, then uh, welcome. Uh, great to have you along today. Um, I'm having a really fantastic conversation with Glenn Vasalo, who is the Managing Director of GRT Lawyers, and also the Chairman of the Board of the GRT Foundation. I've known Glenn now for probably five or six years. Uh, it was fantastic to sit down with him and really have a chat about um, you know, what he's trying to achieve, which is quite unique within his space, which is the coupling of a commercial law firm with a foundation in order to uh, really emphasize this idea of social entrepreneurship. And we really get into his motivations for doing that. Uh, and in fact, he recently was invited to speak to New York University on this very topic. So it was very um, uh, timely for me to talk to him. And I suppose what he talks about is the fact that as a lawyer, it gets a little disheartening to think that you're only working harder in order to make more money. So by closely aligning his law firm with a foundation, it meant that not only he, but his team could start to believe that they were working for something greater than just themselves. And uh, it's been very, very successful. Anyway, I'll let him talk more about that later. Uh, we have a conversation about his rugby career, the pinnacle of which was playing one game for the Queensland Reds. Uh, we talk about the fact that he had to hand deliver over 100 CVs to law firms in order to get one interview, which I think uh, has great relevance for those people who are uh, looking for uh, some motivation in terms of their job search. We talk about how to build high-performance culture, particularly within professional services environments. And uh, as I say, we talk a lot about this idea of social, social entrepreneurship. Another very interesting thing about Glenn is that back in 2011, way before it was cool and trendy, he was developing an app to allow listed organisations to run shareholder meetings through their phone. And I imagine... Uh, at the time, you know, talking about app development would have been a very weird and unheard of thing. And uh, he talks a little bit about the, uh, the challenges and the opportunities that he faced through that experience. Anyway, enough of me talking. Let's sit back now and enjoy this conversation with Glenn Vasalo. Well, hi, Glenn. Welcome to the Arashay podcast. I know that we've been talking about doing this for a long time and uh, it's fantastic to finally have the opportunity to sit down and have a chat to you. I suppose uh, to begin with, for the benefit of people who are listening in, let us know a bit about your current range of professional responsibilities. Thank you, Richard, and thanks for having me. Yeah, and I look forward to having this conversation with you. My current um, role and responsibilities as co-founder and managing director of GRT Lawyers and the GRT Foundation is really to... Uh, lead both organisations with the common purpose, which is ultimately to serve our clients to the highest legal standard that we can deliver, and through the foundation to serve the community um, to the highest standard we could possibly deliver to the local community. Not an easy thing to do, but one that I feel is over on track and delivering on. And I know that this uh, uh, combination of a law firm coupled with a foundation is quite unique, and that's been a big part of the overall brand identity of GRT, hasn't it? Look, it has. And I suppose when I uh, grew up, I grew up in a team environment and my exposure into the law, particularly in the big law firms, was very difficult for that team environment to be cultivated and supported. And uh, it took a long time for me to realise that the type of legal firm that was going to enable 
a particular type of lawyer to thrive didn't exist. And I suppose GRT is just a reflection of what I really wanted to do, which was a combination of the cut and thrust of corporate deals, uh, IPOs, takeovers, etc. Um, but the other part of it was, well, after a while those deals can make someone feel quite stale. Mm. Uh, you can find it difficult to really uh, stay motivated to perform at a high level. And so I had to figure out a way in which I needed to be connected with something that was a bit bigger than that. And, um, and that did take a long time to unfold. And uh, by the end of 2010, it became crystal clear to me that the way to do that was to uh, build another arm to the legal practice, which was um, what is now described as a social enterprise. I didn't know that it was a social enterprise at the time. It was just something that my wife, Eliza, and I had talked about. Uh, she's a high-quality child psychologist, and, um, and together we came up with this idea that I would uh, lead the law firm and she would lead the social enterprise to provide high-quality services um, to children supporting their mental needs. So in a nutshell, um, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that uh, the motivation for doing good quality legal work was that a proportion of the fees that were generated through that were being utilised in a social enterprise. So it made uh, going out into the cut and thrust of commercial deals more uh, interesting and kept people's motivation is stronger than if it was purely just for profit. Yeah, that's right, Richard. It was, believe it or not, as simple as this. I remember working back to midnight, you know, night after night after night, and I got to a point where it simply came down to this simple proposition. I thought to myself, if I stay back past midnight for another dollar, is that really going to make a difference to my kid's life? Is that really going to make a difference and improve their situation in my family life? Mm. Or can I do something that's going to actually help, I suppose, give them encouragement to do what they want to do as they get older? Will they respect what I do more if I do it differently? And so that's where the idea and I started to explore, well, yeah, if I'm going to work past midnight, it's, it, it's not going to matter whether I make an extra dollar for myself. It's going to be, well, what can I channel that money into to actually make a difference out there? Mm -hmm. And so the concept started to evolve from that where I felt as though that what we could do is work hard, yes. Uh, the model is a unique one, um, which I don't think exists yet in Australia, where 8% of our profits from the legal practice mm -hmm. goes into our tandem structured, um, which is an Australian registered charity called the GRT Foundation. Mm -hmm. We didn't seek any external funding. We don't need any external funding. It's all self-funded. We are registered for DGR status and income exempt status in case the community wants to support what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But it gave us the ability then to um, build ourselves, and again, this is quite another interesting, unique aspect to what we've done here, build our own divisions within the charity, um, one called Child's Play. So we're funding ourselves, and this is where that midnight, you know, because <laughs> I have worked past midnight since then, and the money that we generate, um, you know, a proportion of that goes into funding the child psychology business to, to pay the wages of some really good um, child psychologists in Queensland. I mean, that being said, though, my wife and I made a very conscious decision that all of our time would be voluntary, mm -hmm. and it has been since the start of the um, GRT Foundation in two th since 2011, mm -hmm. and will continue to be. So a couple of questions. Firstly, uh, why... Uh, build it yourself versus identifying a couple of causes that you really believed in mm. and um, and just giving them money to do the works that they would be doing other, otherwise themselves? Oh, great question. In fact, um, it all uh, started to percolate in terms of the idea over a series of years. Like it, it started really back in sort of 2007 and 2008 when the thinking process from my point of view started to evolve. And so the starting point was... I realised that the cut and thrust of the legal blended with the community contribution was where I wanted to go and my wife and family wanted to go. Mm -hmm. The next question was, well, well, how do we best do that? And at the time, my wife was um, working in a palliative care unit, a uh, highly regarded one in Queensland, where she was helping educate kids around what would otherwise be described as something very morbid. And mm -hmm. to me, it just was a light bulb moment where I thought, wow, what a significant contribution to the community. She was helping kids deal with grief and loss where... Mm -hmm. You know, they lost a mum or a dad right. or a sibling. Sure. It's interesting. I've had Paul Hummingbird, uh, Paul Quilliam, the founder of Hummingbird House, House. on the podcast. And, uh, and uh, so it's a very um, 
Uh, you know, I don't think it's something that people think about in the back of their minds, but mm. not really consciously until it gets brought to their attention. You go, yeah, I can really see how um, critically important it is to have those conversations. Oh, look, and they've done a tremendous job at Huntingbird House. And we did, and part of that process, and to, to answer your question, is that we did speak to Paul. Mm-hmm. And um, we spoke to everyone we possibly could to figure out what were they doing, mm-hmm. because what we didn't want to ju- do was duplicate some other service that was out there. Um, and as it turned out, um, when my wife left the bereavement centre to have our two kids, um, that centre no longer, um, a couple of years later, ceased to exist. So what we then worked out was, well, what we could do is do it ourselves and fill that gap. Mm. So, yes, it was a very important decision for us to figure out whether we could work with another group or, in fact, was it better to actually solve the problem ourselves mm-hmm. and build it ourselves, which is where we mm-hmm. landed, because it didn't exist. Fair enough. And um, the other question was, you know, you said a contribution of 8%. Mm. Where does 8 come from versus 7 or 10? Or, <laughs> yes, you know, why 8? <laughs> uh, Chinese uh, superstition, really, at the time. Really? I, yeah, yeah. At the time when I was really thinking this through, I was doing a transaction in Singapore. Right. And it happened to coincide with um, Chinese New Year. Okay. And while I was up there, I was, you know conscious of all the uh, miniature mandarin trees and all of the different Chinese philosophies. So I thought, okay, eight's a lucky number. I'll right. go with eight. It was that simple. Wow. Oh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> As a complete segue, I was just reading something yesterday and they were talking about um, feng shui. Mm. And I was thinking, I haven't heard about feng shui in such a long time. But it, for a brief moment in time, you know, everybody was reorganising their house and redesigning their office and, you know, to these feng shui principles. And then before you knew it, it's gone. Yeah. So... Yep. Uh, I don't know what made me think about that, but I suppose... Well, I suppose mm, in in Asian cultures, that has a big impact on certainly the way that things are thought through, and Feng Shui is quite a major piece in places like Singapore and and Hong Kong. Um, And look, we were doing a lot of mining work with um, major Chinese investors and um, Asian investors, but um, the eight was really about, well, you know, what is a decent contribution? Mm -hmm. It It needed to be big enough to make a difference in terms of funding mm-hmm. the social enterprise that we wanted to fund, uh, but not too big that it impacted the performance of the legal practice. So I think eight was the right number, mm-hmm. and it's proven to be a lucky one. Oh, well, fair <laughs> enough. Okay. So uh, keen to talk a lot more about uh, uh, what you're doing now, but let's uh, step back in time to where it all began. Tell us <laughs> a little bit about uh, you know where you were born and mum, dad, brothers and sisters and your early life. Yeah, okay. But... Um, goes back to 1974 when I was born in January. Uh, I was born in um, the Cronulla Shire, actually, okay. in Sydney. Yeah, go the Sharks. Yeah, go the Sharkies. I was a big Sharky supporter. And, um, yeah, mum and dad are both from uh, Maltese background. Mm-hmm. Um, dad and mum were both born in Egypt, as it turns out. Okay. Um, dad in uh, Alexandria and mum in Cairo, and both came out on a boat uh, and landed in Sydney, Maroubra, that's right. But so we, they weren't together at the time? Or they no, were, look, mum and dad were still babies then. They were oh, like, yeah, okay, no. right. Oh, yeah, yeah, so they were both, um, I think dad was nearly one, and I, in fact, I've just figured out that he may have arrived on Melbourne Cup Day okay. in um, about 1950, I think it was. Right. And mum, I think, arrived shortly after, but both settled independent of each other in Maroubra. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the Maltese community started to originate, and... Um, Anyway, Dad and Mum were humble beginnings. You know, they didn't have much at all. Uh, Dad worked for the council uh, and Mum looked after the boys. And there was, I've got an older brother who's 18 months older than myself, Damien, and, um, and we lived in a very humble house in, in Sydney. Um, Dad worked for the council. He's a bright fellow, um, uh, but really got to a point within the council where he didn't want to um, continue to work there and then just all of a sudden said, well, why don't we go to Brisbane mm. when I was six and seven for a a change of environment so we did we just packed up and, and we came to to brizzy mm-hmm. um we lived with my auntie for the first six months uh, because we didn't have a place to stay uh and as it turns out you know cash was tight um we end up the four of us staying in i think is accurate described as about a half a house it was, okay. wasn't much at all um but we we're a close family and i um at that stage, was just a little fat Maltese kid uh, <laughs> <laughs> who enjoyed his footy and still followed the Sharks, even though I was living in Brizzy. But, right. um, yeah, from that, I, I suppose um, I'm very grateful for what my parents gave me, which was, you know, unreserved support and love. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, we were able to sort of work our way through. Dad worked three jobs, Mum worked two jobs. And... Um, 
Dad figured out that what he wanted to do was become a customs officer, so he studied okay. uh, at the age of 40 to become a customs officer and found his, his passion, which was being a customs officer. And right. what that did is led us into Mount Gravatt. We ended up buying a house in Mount Gravatt and I ended up going to um, uh, a primary school, St Catherine's there. And then um, after that, my dad got relocated to Gladstone when I was 10. And to we work spent at the port. To work at the port, yeah, okay. which was three years up in Gladstone mm-hmm. back in about, I think it was 1985. Okay. And that was a fascinating experience for me because right. um, it gave me an insight into the mining sector as, yep. a, as a young 10, 11 year old. Uh, it was a very sporting community. And um, it gave me the ability to meet some really nice people, appreciate, you know, regional Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, and also concepts like boom and bust. You know, I remember as an 11-year-old, you know, people talking about, oh, this is a boom and bust town. And I'm thinking, well, what's that? Right. Well, people would say that, you know, seven years ago, we had another 10,000 people in this town. And it's mm. like, wow. Uh, and then what happened was we um, were there for three years. It was a great time for the family. We came back to Brisbane, uh, went to high school at Clairvaux MacKillop College. Uh, who, and my wife happened to go there as well. Right. But she was four years my junior. So, okay. Um, uh, we sort of crossed paths a little bit when I was going through high school, and um, I left uh, high school and um, still quite active in sport. Um, hit seventeen, eighteen, and made a decision that I'd have a crack at uh, sport. Mm-hmm. I was playing rugby league all the way through until the end of high school, and then I broke my collarbone twice in the one year. <laughs> <laughs> and Dad said to me, "Mate." Uh, why don't you try a different sport like rugby? Right. You just never know the contacts you'll make. Right. And I said, oh. and I always took my dad's advice. He, he, why would you try a different sport, say rugby league moving to rugby union, mm. based on injury? Yeah, because in rugby league they tackled a lot more back then than they did in rugby union. Right, So okay. I'm talking about probably about 1991 now. Okay, right. And um, don't mean to be disrespectful to the rugby fans out there, but um, tackling and the intensity of the two games at that stage were, were, were different. Right. Rugby was still not a professional sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, rugby league was a very intense sport. So, right. yeah, and I wasn't, you know, being Maltese. Sure. You know, 170 centimetres, you do right. a lot of tackling on some big blokes. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Dad just said, hey, why don't you try it? But more importantly, I think Dad was um, mindful of the business connections because a right. lot of um, rugby players, you know, sure. went to uni yeah, yeah. and it was a very tight business mm-hmm. network. Mm-hmm. And that's what he really said. He said, go try rugby. You just mm-hmm. never know the network that you'll make. And it never true word spoken. So I said to my mates at um, Clairvaux, why don't we have a crack at rugby? And then we ended up, best by chance, I was working at Amod All Sports with one of the guys who played at South Rugby. And uh, he said, why don't you come down and join South? Went to South Rugby. And my very first uh, training session was a fellow called Alex Evans, who was mm-hmm. like a Wallaby coach guru, mm-hmm. coached the um, Wallaby forwards and was my very first person who coached me mm-hmm. in the off season leading into my first season at um, South Rugby and that was a fantastic journey um, I was able to sort of learn a lot very quickly at South they had um, essentially in the A grade side the full Wallaby side mm-hmm. and it was a really good um, club so and I at sp- the same time you were working part time for AMART the sports store correct right yes and at what point did you professionally start to have aspirations towards being a lawyer well at that stage i just wanted to um, finish school with high enough te score which it was back then to yep. get into uni right at this stage i felt as though i just needed the continued education but in which direction i wasn't completely sure mm-hmm. um so i i managed to just scrape into griffith university that's where i went oh really yeah yeah what um what year was that <laughs> if you don't mind me asking oh uh, so uh i was exactly the same and uh i got into griffith uni in 1986 to do what was then called a bachelor of social and industrial administration wow because i wanted to study marketing and that was the only uni that offered marketing mm. and uh so marketing hrw double major which became their bachelor of commerce oh okay but griffith being a real greeny lefty yes, you know it was, uh yeah. Uh, university back in those days, yeah. out at Nathan, you know, amongst the trees. <laughs> Instead of calling it Bachelor of Commerce, it was called a Bachelor of Social and Industrial Administration, wherever they pulled that name from. Wow. But by the time I'd finished, they changed, and I was very happy that they'd changed it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so you got a T score high enough to get into Griffith. Yeah, and I studied, actually got enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts right. in Humanities. Yeah, okay. Um, and again, sort of got in there, and, that, and I was sort of doing both. I was playing rugby, and then right. I was studying. And then um, 
I made a decision in my own mind that at the age of 19, 18, I wanted to just basically commit and see what could happen within the rugby mm. world um, and made a conscious decision to really give it a go. To be a professional union player? Yeah, rugby player, yeah. Right. And at this stage, it was about um, 1992. So again, yeah. more to just try and play A grade, I suppose, and right. strive to you know play competitive rugby. And what sort of career, I mean did you feel was available to you at that time? Uh, I think deep down in my mind, I wanted to be a CEO. Right. I don't know where that really came from, mm -hmm. but I felt as though I wanted to be part of leading an organisation. So was rugby just to do whilst you had the chance to do? It was, you didn't see rugby as being your you know, career in the longer term? Look, to be open and honest, I actually thought, geez, it would be cool to play a right. decent standard of rugby, sure. you know, because, you know, what could come of that, it, who knows, but it, right. it might give you something. Yeah. Um, there might be some benefits that come from it. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, yeah, and it was a quite a winning culture back at South in, in that era. And so, you know, I was exposed at an early age in rugby to, to Wallaby players, mm -hmm. and um, not that I ever thought, and probably one of the things I look back on is I never thought about actually playing for the Wallabies. Um, I never even thought really hard about playing for the Reds. Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, everyone said you're too small to play rugby. Mm -hmm. And it was more about, um, I suppose, giving it a go to see what I could achieve. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, something quite remarkable happened. And that was, you know, there was a dedicated training program and I gave it everything. And I was predominantly a halfback and then got switched to the wing. And within a very short window of time, I got promoted from third grade rugby union all the way through to getting selected for the Queensland Reds. Right. And, um, yeah, there was a series of events that um, happened that led to that. And I remember then, you know, the moment coming to, to run out onto Ballymore, uh, back then when it was Super 10, mm -hmm. uh, in front of about 16,000 people. And that was a pretty interesting night. It was a, it was a, <laughs> it was a complete surreal experience, you know, to, to be out there playing in a sport that was new mm. at such a young age. I had just turned 21. Okay. And um, anyway, the Queensland Reds went on to um, win that Super 10. Mm -hmm. um, and I only played the one game for the Queensland Reds. You know, and that taught a lot about... It taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about success. Mm -hmm. And if I'm to be very open and honest with everyone, I, I felt as though that I was way out of my depth. Mm -hmm. And I'd never prepared myself mentally for actually being in that position. And... Um, it just taught me about different concepts of making decisions based off fear mm -hmm. or decisions based not on fear. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of that leading into the game, the um, pressure that I look back and see what I put on myself, um, you know, the self-doubt that uh, can creep into your mindset mm -hmm. in um, pressure situations, you know. To learn that at such a young age mm -hmm. in such a high-quality team um, is what I then figured out what I wanted to do was I wanted to take those learnings mm. and then apply it into business. And did you also feel a sort of a sense of deflation that you only had one game? Do you look back and go, oh, you know, I, I, or do you say, wow, isn't it awesome I played a game or, boy, you know, I could have played lots more games and I only got to play one? It's a good question. Um, I suppose at the time, because I was so young and it was new to the whole family, this journey that I was on, you know, and... Um, and so I suppose there were the people... The journey of sport, you mean? Yeah, and sort of playing in that level. Right. Um, and sort of moving into that phase of, you know, actually mm -hmm. putting on a Reds jersey. Because mm -hmm. I'd always supported New South Wales you right. know, through State of Origin. So I actually had to mentally switch and go, I'm committing to Queensland. And mm. I've never stopped supporting mm -hmm. Queensland since. Um, but I looked and listened to a lot of people that perhaps I shouldn't have, mm. which only created more doubt in my mind. Mm. And, um, you know, part of why we do and, you know, what we do today with... Um, you know, breaking down the stigma attached to mental health has a meaning and has a, um, a connection with just about something that I've either been exposed to, my wife has been exposed to, or people that, have, we've been, that, we've been come, that we have come in contact with. Um, so what we're about is that it's interesting if you had have developed that mental strength and sort of did a little bit more mental preparation through that phase, would have that made a difference? Mm. Well, I don't think it would have hurt. Mm. Well, I suppose, you know, it's interesting uh, to sort of segue out of this conversation. Mm. I mean, you talk about mental health. Mm. I mean, there is a percent, as soon as you say mental health to me, mm. I almost, well, I do, I immediately go to people who are mentally unwell, mm. 
rather than people who could be mentally healthier. Mm. So you say mental health. Yes. I mean, um, you wouldn't typically describe the situation that you faced as being a mental health challenge. No, but it's all related. Sure. And this is interesting because when I first started working in the legal industry and my wife, who discovered her passion to become a child psychologist, as soon as she enrolled in studying it, I remember sitting down with the boss of the law firm I work with mm. at a dinner and he asked her what was she studying and she said psychology. He sort of scoffed at her. I know it was not a criticism of him, mm-hmm. it was just the time it was at. Mm-hmm. Scoffed at her and said, well, that's just that's a load of rubbish. Mm. Now, fortunately, we've evolved as a society. Um, I think we can learn a lot more and develop a lot more in terms of you know, looking at the simple scenario that mm. a healthy mind is the most important thing that matters because mm-hmm. what will naturally follow is a healthy body. Mm. And what I think we are very focused on doing is working with as many like-minded people to help educate the broader community about the benefits of a healthy mind. Not easy to do. And, um, you know, tied in with that is the power of the mind and... If we can get that more right than what we're doing today, the economic ripple effect on that is massive sure. for the Australian community. Okay. So let's get back to uh, Korea. Uh, so um, you've played your game for the Reds. Yes. Uh, at what And how far progressed were you in your arts degree by that stage? Well, by that stage, I had completed my arts degree and I had got enough of a qualification to pick pretty much any course. Right. So I sort of went through this phase of just focusing on everything, focus yep. on rugby, focus on studies, and out popped a couple of two big results. One was, you know, getting selected for the Reds, and then the second one was I got the choice to pick any course. Right. And um, and I selected um, I selected law and commerce. Yeah. Because I figured that you know to actually lead an organisation of the business to have those qualifications would put you in the best position to do it really effectively. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, studying the dual degree. And it was at Griffith as well. And mm-hmm. that was a really good experience for me. It was, yeah, back when Nathan Campus was still fairly green. And um, <laughs> it was a nice journey for me to go through that. And it yeah. took six years to complete. But um, the rugby intersected after the first year of that dual degree. And mm-hmm. um, Griffith gave me some time out to sort of just sure. focus on rugby. Yeah. I played the game for the Reds. The next game, uh, we had a bye. And then the next game was in South Africa, which right. was a semi-final. I played for South A grade. And I injured my knee right and that that took me out uh with an operation and i was out for six months i then re-enrolled back into griffith to do it full time and um play catch up which i did and um, i was able to graduate with all the first students that Mm -hmm. i started with Mm -hmm. and then post-graduating university where did you initially go in terms of your legal career yeah so my marks were pretty good but they weren't outstanding um and so i found it very difficult to actually find a job uh, in Brisbane mm. so again I'm the sort of person that you know gives everything 100% so I actually did up my own CVs and um, and walked around each and every law firm that I could find and hand deliver my CVs to the receptionist um, I didn't get too many replies I got two back one said thank you but no thank you and the other one said we might see you for an interview okay Glenn and that uh, was Clark and Ken right so it was my only opportunity really was to get into law was through Clark and Ken and Ross Clark back then and Eddie Ken who ran the show. Uh, I think because of my rugby connections, I, I, I got a look in, mm. maybe. And how many of those uh, submissions uh, or CVs do you reckon you dropped off? I'd be over 100. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, as a parallel, it amazes me. People I talk to who say, oh, I can't get a job. Well, how many... Um, uh, I, my book uncovered the hidden job market. Mm. What you need to do is get in front of your employer of choice before they know that they need you. Yep. And the way to do that is to reach out to them and connect with them and ask you know, for the opportunity to meet with them. How many times have you done it? None. Or five. Okay, so here's this guy <laughs> or woman who's you know, been earning hundreds of thousands of dollars leading a massive organisation uh, and they're either too scared or too egotistical mm. to go and do what you did, which is, you know, walk around town, hand out 100 CVs. Now, you wouldn't do it that way anymore because of technology and so on necessarily, but fundamentally it's exactly the same concept, isn't it? Exactly the you same. Know, you exactly. only need one opportunity, yeah. and it took you 100 knocks to get in the door, mm. but you got in the door. Yeah, 
Because I'm a big believer, whether rightfully or wrongfully, mm. that no one is born with beautiful natural talent. There are mm. some people that are born um, with different skills, but the people that are successful are the ones that just dedicate themselves and keep applying themselves until they get the outcome that they're looking for. Yep. And I think if you can distill it down to that, whether it is you know uh, applying for a job or um, you know something else. It's just that constant discipline of just improving what you're doing on a more regular basis. And you will get there. And then all, this is where the mental health aspect comes into it. And all you need is that constant reassuring from people around you who support and care about you that if you keep going, you will, keep, you, you will put yourself in the best position to get the right result. Absolutely. And so, uh, and so that was your first experience working for others. Yes. How long did it take you to decide that you wanted to work for yourself? Oh, good question. I actually didn't figure that out until about um, February 2011. Okay. Yeah, so it was quite some time. So, you know, my first um, exposure into Clark and Kim was um, the only article Clark there because um, at that point in time, I think about three months earlier, that sacked all the article Clarks. So I was the only one there. So it was a steep learning curve into that environment. Sacked them because of just the general economic environment? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. It could have been a combination of that and perhaps okay. underperformance. I don't sure. know. Um, but yeah, I had um, two years as an article clerk mm-hmm. at Clark and Cairn. I then sort of got a sense of what life was like within that environment. And then I, you know, obviously hear about what big law is doing. I then applied to um, move jobs and I was lucky enough to end up working for a law firm called Deakins, which has become now Norton Rose. Yep. Um, that was off the back of a merger between Dunhill, Madeline Butler and Deakins and so you've had the two sort of groups coming together. Within about a sort of 12 month period I could see also this other fascinating aspect to the big law firms of how fragmented they could become um, and how siloed they could become and I'm not saying that uh, about all law firms but um, and it wasn't a criticism it was just very difficult because I suppose that ability to bring people together in a big environment is, is takes a lot of talent. So what ended up happening was a lot of partners started to leave. Mm. And, um, and Equity partners. Equity partners, non-equity okay. partners. Right. And so I found myself progressing within Deakins at a rapid rate. Mm. Um, and again, this is sort of like where the mental health aspect kicks in. I remember being promoted to uh, senior associate like within a year and a half of being admitted mm. and feeling as though I was going to have to run some transactions that I didn't have the capability of um, running. And I remember that Christmas period vividly because, it, you know, I, I didn't get much sleep that, that Christmas period worrying about being able to perform at that level. Mm. Um, but applied some of the techniques that I'd learnt through sport in terms of, you know, things that I could do to mentally prepare and applied those disciplines into into the work that I was doing as a lawyer and um, progressed pretty quickly through the ranks there at Deakins the opportunity to see it at a, at a very high level as to how the organisation was run. I also got to see it from different perspectives. And again, it's not a criticism, but it's very hard to retain high quality people, a lot of them, um, in those bigger firms. And so, you know, Why? because there's so much um, management time in, you know, dealing with other offices, mm-hmm. other jurisdictions, that the ability to properly hands on mentor junior staff and actually stay connected with your clients you know you might have 10 hours mm. in the day mm. or call it 12 hours in the day mm-hmm. there's a large chunk of that that's taken away from actually dedicating your, your time to what really counts service delivery to clients and supporting the staff and mentoring them mm-hmm. in my opinion and that's mm-hmm. what I was really looking at and observing there was also a culture back then of you know last man type of standing type of thing which didn't really sit comfortable with me where mm-hmm. people would be just staying back for the sake of staying back as opposed right. to actually doing work sure so it was all these cultural nuances which ran in complete contrast, in my opinion, to what ultimately leads to a high-performance culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, you look at um, high-performing cultures, whether it's in business or sporting environments, the two are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so what I was constantly looking at was how do you build a really high-performance culture in a legal environment? And it's not an easy thing to do. And it's a blend of, you know, the highest intellect with, you know, like you touched on, you know, you've got people who make decisions based off fear. You've got to drive a culture that's not a fear-based decision-making culture. Mm-hmm. And you've got to drive a culture that's the opposite of an egotistical-driven culture. Mm-hmm. So you've got to sit in the middle there. Mm-hmm. And so 
that's where this other centre of gravity came from, which was the community contribution. Mm -hmm. That's what anchors you in, that tandem structure mm -hmm. is what anchors you in to make those decisions. And and do you think that, co that thinking coalesced out of uh, largely your own experience in terms of you know, what you'd been perceiving as happening in a law firm, whereas the behaviours you'd seen uh, happening within the uh, rugby environment or was there particular things that you were seeing out in the market, either locally or globally, or books that you were reading or thought leaders, you know, that sparked this, uh, this new awareness for you? Yeah, um, it was actually a combination of all of those things. Right. You know, and I suppose one of the things that I've tried to do was really push myself out of my comfort zone as often as I could yep. to experience them firsthand and then watch and study those around me. So it was a blend of looking at, you know, I remember playing with Timmy Horan, Jason Little and those guys who were absolute legends of the game, mm. you know, and watching them perform at a very high standard, you know, and um, looking at the dedication they took to training and then equally in the corporate environment looking and talking to very successful, you know, business people. And it's a blend of all of those different things and looking at where people got it right mm. and where, in my opinion, people got it wrong. Mm. And so uh, it was moving out of that environment that GRT started. Well, it, yeah, it was, there was another step into that where I um, realised that that big law firm was, there was going to be a place for it, mm -hmm. but it wasn't where I was going to thrive. And, mm. you know, I wanted to really be, build a high quality, you know, high end uh, specialist law firm that wasn't all things to all people but they were very competent, very high quality on the capital markets, takeovers, M&A, and then really high complex dispute work. So I had the opportunity to sort of set up one from scratch in conjunction with another group of guys, and that went from zero to 60 staff over a five-year period during that um, you know, resources boom. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the travel came into um, you know, Asia and sort of doing a lot of that Asian-bound investment work. Um, and that was that point in time where financially things were going extraordinarily well mm -hmm. and at the same time gives you the ability to sort of work out, well, is this stimulating yourself to perform? You know, because part of it was, you know, what's going to make me happy and what's going to make my family for the future really do well and um, ultimately what my kids would be able to be motivated by. Mm. And... Um, yeah, so reflecting on all of that was where I came with the idea to sell up, to, to, to add another dimension to the mm -hmm. legal practice. And um, to do that, you need a common value system mm -hmm. shared by the leaders of the organisation. And that then resulted in me um, leaving that law firm and setting up from scratch GRT Lawyers in 2011 mm -hmm. and the GRT Foundation. And what's the GRT refer to? Yeah, so at the time we're doing a lot of global resource and tech work. Okay. So a lot of um, IPOs and M&A and mm -hmm. complex work in resources. So GRT stands, stood for mm -hmm. Global Resource and Technology Specialist. Okay. Yeah, right. so fast forward to 2018 and, um, you know, we're doing complex banking work mm -hmm. um, in the capital market space, M&A space. We're doing complex... Um, industrial work so we're not just limited to resource and technology we're mm -hmm. sort of industry agnostic we just do very good mm -hmm. high quality corporate work mm -hmm. and very complex dispute work uh -huh. I use that exact term for my business <laughs> we are industry agnostic yeah. uh, uh, so yes uh, I understand and, and I suppose in an environment like Brisbane yes uh, you know you to a large degree you need to be you know without the massive um, you know, amount of work in the individual sectors, you've got to be a little bit more flexible. Um, but technology is something that, you know, is obviously uh, very important to you. Mm. And I know that for a while, you know, you're involved in a, uh, a listed organisation, mm. you invented an app and you, mm. you know, so that's quite an exciting different string to your mm. bow. Tell us about all of that. Yeah, and again, it's a constant fascination about, well, and I love the legal profession. It's a, it's a profession for those that are involved in it to be very proud of it. Uh, it's got a very important civil duty. And equally, I'm constantly looking at, well, how do you improve the delivery of legal services? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's an industry that sort of remained relatively the same over a long period of time. And so back in the phase of setting up GRT Lawyers and the GRT Foundation, I had a strong belief that technology was going to play a key role in the service delivery of legal services. So... Um, 
you know, and it was also a bit of a creative phase for, for us as well that we could look to express ourselves through the, the vehicles and we, we set up GRT. And at that stage in 2011, when we set up GRT app, you know, I would talk to people about us developing an app and they would all look at us if we had two heads. Mm. Um, it was very early on development of um, apps. I could see that the development of technology was all sort of, you know, moving into the phone. Back then, though, there was a lot of web-based development work. So um, what we sought to do as well was bring some scale to the business through the technology development. What I mean by that is this. In the corporate space, you have... Um, ASX-listed companies, um, companies listed anywhere else in the world who, um, particularly from an Australian perspective, have to have shareholder meetings. Mm -hmm. So my job as a corporate lawyer would be to coordinate the shareholder meetings, to have the shareholder meetings, um, to deal with all the related shareholder matters, and it's, in my opinion, one of the most archaic um, elements to the Corporations Act and to corporate Australia. Mm. These physical meetings still need to happen. I understand that there's a demographic change that needs to occur. So what we sought to do was create a hybrid structure that enabled listed companies to run a meeting through their phone. Right. And that's what we built. Mm. So we built technology that gave the ability for listed companies to license the technology to run shareholder meetings through the mobile device. And um, ultimately we built that and then we got approached by a listed company for someone to buy that. They put a substantial uh, dollar figure on the technology and the company to buy it. So uh, we realised that, that company needed to be listed. And um, and the, the, the thing on reflection was, was at the right time to, to list. Um, and look, in hindsight, we probably should have delayed that. Um, you know, when you learn, and again, way out of my comfort zone during that phase because it probably grew faster than I expected. Mm -hmm. um, the first client that... Um, we secured was Telstra. Mm -hmm. You know, we figured that Telstra, the big wow. top of town, would want something <laughs> like this. Yep, and they did. And the guy that and I suppose for them to, uh, mm. it's important for their brand to be seen as early adopters of new technology. So I could imagine that if they would have thought, well, if this is the way things are progressing, we want to be riding the front of the wave. Yeah, and I mean, I think that equally, um, they could see that they'd lost, you know, large listed companies, mm. staying connected and engaged with their shareholder community base mm. is very difficult. Mm. You know, there's a lot of ASX reporting requirements that are very important in terms of complying with the law, but that gets lost in translation when you're trying to connect with shareholders. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at bridging that gap. So yeah, look, I mean, they came to us and offered to buy it. Um, I wasn't the CEO capable of running a tech company, mm. um, so we agreed to sell it and appointed another CEO to, to run it. Um, and look, again, that had its challenges, some significant challenges. Um, so as the legal practice grew, the foundation was growing, the technology component within the listed space um, had a fantastic opportunity in front of it. Um, and I was observing how its performance was going and, um, and uh, it was a tricky one because I could see that certain things that um, I would naturally bring to a business dynamic in the sense of what I thought was important. Mm. For me, it's always about high quality teams. If you've got a high quality team, you're gonna get a really good outcome. Mm. If you blend a high quality team with an average asset, you're gonna get a pretty good outcome. If you blend a low quality team with a good asset, you're gonna get a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So again, it was just sort of working all of that through and that taught me a lot about you know high performance cultures. Um, yeah, so we learned a lot through that phase. That company now has a great future ahead of it. Um, and uh, I played a key role in turning that business around and, and then rebuild it. So right. I had to put my own money sure. into it to, to do that, but now it's got a great future. Fantastic. And so, you know, uh, you've been doing lots of different interesting things. Um, if you look at, you know, now towards the future, and you said, okay, this is where my business, my law practice is at, this is where the foundation is at, um, you know, these are the things that I'm excited about for us to move forward into and achieve over the next few years. What would they be? To become the highest quality legal provider in the Australian market that delivers for our clients the highest standard of service. At the same time, delivering the highest standard of service to our community through child's play, providing high quality care for kids in our community, and through Giveability, which is the other division of the foundation, mm -hmm. in providing high-quality support for children with needs. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that now. 
Mm -hmm. So how, how would you measure that to know that you'd gotten to the finish line, you'd achieved that goal? You'll never get, in my opinion, mm -hmm. we will never get there. Right. We're always constantly evolving mm -hmm. how we do it mm -hmm. to year on year improve everything that we do. So mm -hmm. um, you can use um, objective indicators to tell you that you're on track. Right. Such as the transaction, type of transactions that you're doing, mm -hmm. the quality of clientele. Um, and those things are there. But as an organisation, you must never feel as though you're there. You're constantly, mm -hmm. you've got to have that constant thirst to mm -hmm. improve what you do because um, this is not just about me, it's about an organisation and a broader team and now a community that mm -hmm. we're servicing. And so it's so important never to get complacent and it's so important to keep applying ourselves and our minds to, um, to change the legal market mm -hmm. and change the legal industry. So, what are some of the uh, what are some of the changes you see coming uh, that are either self-led or going to be thrust upon both the industry and your own firm? I mean, for example, mm. you talk about uh, artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence is going to have a massive impact on you know, the legal industry. Um, but what are some of the other things that you're considering and and either turning to your advantage or, or building? Um, strategies around? Mm. I suppose because we're now an organisation, again, that just focuses purely on that capital front end, mm -hmm. capital advisory work, and you know, really complex litigation work. And um, I think we're due in the High Court in the next two months on a matter. Um, well, we take all of those experiences and all of the learnings and apply that to our clients' business. You know, whether it be a CEO that's actually looking to IPO or deal with a complex takeover, we don't only bring the legal capability to the table, but mm -hmm. we've actually now got the commercial experience to go with it. Mm -hmm. And that is a unique uh, mm. offering that not too many law firms can actually say that they've done. I remember sitting down having a conversation with you about mm -hmm. that. It must be about a year ago, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so, um, you know, give us an example of, you know, perhaps one of the clients you've been working with or some of the work that you've done that would illustrate that quite well. Obviously, you know, keeping in mind any confidentiality. Yeah, look, one um, interesting thing that happened over the last sort of um, six months is we've been working with a large um, company in the um, financial services industry. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, I suppose, for the last 10 years trying to achieve a corporate outcome. Uh, the owner of this substantial business came to me and said, Glenn, I've been trying to do this thing for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. And so what we do in this marketplace, a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, we much prefer to be in behind the scenes, mm -hmm. you know, working with the key decision makers. And so that thing could be a sale or a management buyout or it could be, you know, something that would substantially change the face of their business. Correct. A yeah. substantial trans transaction mm -hmm. that transforms an organisation. Right. Okay. And what we do is we then work with the key decision makers mm -hmm. and develop the strategy and then execute on that strategy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so um, you know that takes time mm -hmm. when they're very complicated transactions or what we describe as a corporate outcome. Mm -hmm. It might even be, you know, how do we diffuse a $100 million dispute, for example? Mm -hmm. um, again, we've got expertise in that. So mm -hmm. we can do things in behind the scenes to diffuse large disputes. Um, yeah, so we're working on this outcome and um, Friday last week got signed up mm -hmm. and we delivered that. Now, how that actually came about uh, is kind of interesting and it's where the commercial element is such a critical piece to delivery of legal services. Um, it was certainly not something that my client had considered as possible, but the opportunity came through our network for this outcome to be achieved and so we were able to not only um, unpack what the client was looking for in terms of what they were trying to achieve, but actually bring it to the table as well. Mm. Um, it's still working through the process. Uh, it'll be public um, in the not too distant future, mm -hmm. but that's a really good recent example mm. where the client had been at it for 10 years, um, didn't, didn't achieve it. We work with them to achieve it and we've delivered that to them as of last Friday. Fantastic, mm. and uh, you'd be working on multiple similar projects at any one time, I mm. imagine. Yeah, so a lot of guys come when I, guys and girls um, 
who are leading organisations that are looking to float, they'll come to us probably 12 months before they're going to be admitted to the stock exchange. Uh, we've got the capability of actually dissecting the entire organisation, mm. the board composition, uh, and really setting that whole IPA strategy, mm. you know, 12 months in advance. And so our, I suppose, philosophy is really, you know, best prepared, you know, produce the best outcomes. And so we work with those teams, share our learnings, share the things that we got really that we got right, share with people the things we got wrong mm-hmm. and blend that all in. But they will, they will get independent, objective, um, high-quality advice all the way through. And that's, that's exactly what we strive to do every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what are the aspirations in terms of growing the actual size and footprint and so on of the business over you know, the foreseeable future? Yeah, look, it's a good question and one that we constantly assess. Uh, but our focus is very much to continue to develop... Um, ourselves into the highest quality legal provider that people have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not all things to all people, but in our areas of expertise, we want to be recognised as the leaders in that space to deliver mm-hmm. that high quality service. If we're getting that right in Queensland, um, we may explore that into other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. But for us, uh, Queensland's an important market. Uh, we want to continue to sort of service that corporate market. Um, we do a lot of work with high quality and again, our model is, is very much high expertise in our chosen areas, and then we'll work with very high quality, similar like-minded organisations in places like Singapore. So, okay. you know, high quality law firms will work with us to mm-hmm. do the Australian work, and we'll get them to do the Singaporean work. So it's a complete opposite model to the global international model. Mm. And the reason for that, as well as I found that big global law firms, and again, it's not a criticism, just my own observations, I felt limited in terms of, you know jurisdictional expertise Mm -hmm. so if i had a very complex dispute in africa for example and i wanted the best representative in that local jurisdiction it became very problematic for me to be able to get the best in a global environment where because the best may exist in a firm other than yours correct yeah and in those jurisdictions which are in their own right have their own little idiosyncrasies they generally don't fit within those big organizations Mm. so we've got the flexibility to work with whoever Mm. wherever Mm. There's a, there's a lot of very similar models uh, within the executive search base, uh, uh, which are, they're constantly reaching out to me. Richard, you know, do you want to become Arate executive part of <laughs> da, da, da group? And I look at it and I say, do, you know, there's so many constraints in terms of how I can operate and how I, I can pr- present myself to the market and what I can charge in terms of my fees and so on. I've always um, politely declined. Whereas I suppose in your situation, you're really judging it on an individual transaction by transaction basis. You're not saying to the Singaporean company, we're setting up a long-term you know, strategic alliance or uh, it's more we have a particular matter we need to deal with. Will you partner with us on that matter? That's right. And no, that's exactly, and this is a really important point. Our philosophy is this. If we deliver you know, and focus on doing the best job that we can possibly do for our clients and the people we work with, then people will want to work with us. Mm. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's very much focused on everything that we do being in the moment to deliver the best that we can do for our clients at that point in time and doing that every single day. Um, and, the, and the longer that we can do that for, uh, the better it will be for GRT mm. and the people that we work with. And what about the goals for the foundation? You know, mm. where would you like to see uh, in particular, uh, you know, child's play and giveability grow to? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and I had the opportunity to recently be invited to go and speak at New York University there mm-hmm. on social entrepreneurship and impact investing. Now, when I set up the concept of GRT Lawyers and the GRT Foundation, I did so because my wife was such a high-quality child psychologist and I wanted her to be supported, you know, because when she was working in those different environments, there were always capital constraint. Mm-hmm. And I was always sort of working with her to say in the background, there's got to be a better business model. So for us mm-hmm. to build child's play into a sociable, sustainable enterprise mm-hmm. where we can actually continue to do our service mm-hmm. and not have to put any more money in is, is a very unique model. But that took a lot of work to get that right, a lot of analysis. But what we can do is duplicate that in mm-hmm. different regions. So mm-hmm. I'd like to look at duplicating the child's play service. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one goal. The other thing from a um, law firm perspective is that I think that we've got such access to information as a law firm and lawyers generally who like to be mentally stimulated is that now we're opening up to our staff for them to explore what else is out there for us as a group to solve. Mm -hmm. 
you know, within the, 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 the mandate of our um, constitutional objectives. And so we run, you know, monthly sessions as a, as a firm mm-hmm. uh, where we hear from the staff as to what they see are important issues. Mm. And as a collective group, we talk all of those matters through. So we're actually now got a couple of ideas that we're working towards. It looks as though one might be now that we're doing the child psychology. One of the things mm-hmm. that we're dealing with is that we've got a big waiting list now. So we've got nine high-quality child psychologists mm-hmm. who are seeing now probably 120 kids a week. Mm. We can bulk bill them and still make a little surplus. It's not a lot. It's $100 a month. Mm-hmm. Again, part of the model. Um, but we've got a big waiting list. So we've got people coming from rural Queensland to come to Morningside to be seen by Child's Play. Um, you know, we've got um, capability that's operating on the Gold Coast. So there's an opportunity for us to look at some accommodation mm-hmm. that sort of sits in there to help both that sit in the middle of the two divisions mm-hmm. where a mum and a, and, um, or a father, for that matter, and, and their child may need to come to to Brisbane, uh, whether that be to, you know... To be, accom- time- to, to be accommodated. Yeah. Like a Ronald McDonald House kind of idea. Well, the, if, if that's not going to duplicate what's already out there, yeah, sure. that, could be, that could be one part of it. The right. other part of it is taking some technology and scaling the psychology piece and, mm. and making it available through, you know, what is now known as Skype, but that mm-hmm. model will evolve, no doubt. Mm-hmm. To, to giving us the reach through technology, and I think that's another area of focus for mm. us as well. I've been listening to a particular podcast, and they uh, use this opportunity to have little sponsors. That's mm. obviously how they make their money. In fact, they make <laughs> a lot of money. And recently I heard one which was about basically an online psychology service in the US mm. where you know you subscribe for a certain amount per month, and you've basically got a chat relationship with an online psychologist. Um, it's fascinating to see how so many different industries are being, you know, um, impacted by technology mm. and people who are on the front foot trying to, uh, you know, take, make those changes into opportunity. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it might be worth having a look and seeing what those guys are doing. Well, it is, um, yeah, absolutely, understanding what, what is being done out there. Sure. And, you know, not duplicating what's out there but mm. trying to support it. Now, before we wind up, because yes. I recognise you've got a very busy day, we've talked a lot about your career and mm. about... Uh, law and the uh, foundation some but in terms of your mental health so what are the kind of things that you like to do when you're not at work uh you know to keep your mental health as high as it possibly can be yeah no i like to um i'm very lucky i've got a wife as a psychologist so (laughs) (laughs) and she's excellent and so i get the privilege of being able to sort of unpack the day with her right um because she's part of grt and a significant Mm. part of that that helps a lot and again it's um, talking things through with her. I love uh, being out in the surf, so I love surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, um, you know, just spending time to think things through and, and be in the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of things, um, staying connected to my kids. Um, yeah, so it's a blend of talking things through with my wife, um, a little bit of meditation as well to, to stay a little centred. Um, staying connected with my kids and my family, mm-hmm. um, stepping back and assessing each day, I suppose, in the way I've gone about it to reflect on it, mm-hmm. think about, um, you know, the next day. And and I suppose I'm lucky because I've built something that I love to do every day. Mm. So for me, um, it's now working with other people to help them, I suppose, feel the same way. Mm. I note that your son's name is Archie, and my yeah. son's name's Archie too. <laughs> yeah. Yes, what a great name. And uh, I was at a, my, uh, one of my son's best friend's dog's name's Archie, <laughs> and then I was at another party on the weekend. One of my daughters went to a six, my daughter went to a six-year-old's birthday party, and they had a dog whose name was Archie, Archie too. Right. So many Archies in my world at the moment. Yeah, I know. He's, he's now about to turn nine, and so back then nine. he was, yeah, so he... He, uh, Archie wasn't all that common, but my wife loved the name and as, as the wife. Is he uh, Archibald or Archer? Just straight Archie. No, oh, Archie. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. my son's Archibald. Archibald. Well, everybody calls him Archie. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so my son's just about to turn 11. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know any Archies at the time. But yeah. anyway, that's okay. Well, look, um, uh, Glenn, I really appreciate your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Before we wind it up, is there anything else that you wanted to add or I didn't ask that I should have asked or... You know, any final comments from you? No, thank you, Richard, for the opportunity to be able to talk with you today. And um, I look forward to more conversations with similar people to help us, as I said at the start, to, you know, healthy mind equals healthy body, which is a better community. So.
Sure. Well, on that note, thanks again and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you, you too, Richard. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.